Welcome to FEPS Talks, a podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Welcome to this new edition of the FEPS Talks. I'm David Rinaldi, Director of Studies and Policies at the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. And I'm super glad that today we can welcome in this new episode of FEPS Talk, Professor Vivian Schmidt, Jean Monnet Professor of European Integration at Boston University. We are also glad that she's uh, over the years contributing uh, to FEPS uh, because she's a member of our scientific council. And uh, we are particularly grateful, actually, because today uh, we will have also the opportunity to look a little bit at her last contribution. She just published a relevant book on the Europe's crisis of legitimacy. I'm pretty interested in the nice subtitle that you have found, Governing by Rules and Rulings by Numbers in the Eurozone. So, Professor Schmidt, you have this ability to look at the legitimacy and at the objectives of the Eurozone and actually of the economic policy of the EU from a democratic viewpoint. What is your feeling in these big times of change also from the economic viewpoint? So, David, thank you. And thanks to FEPS for having me on this podcast. Delighted to do this and delighted to be able to talk about my new book. And in the book, what I do is, is I ask, I use legitimacy as the lens through which to evaluate what happened in the Eurozone crisis in terms of political economy, politics, and governance procedures. This is a way of being able to pull it all together. Generally, when people have written about the Eurozone crisis, they've focused either mainly on the political economy or on the politics or on the governance procedures. And what I thought was useful and probably necessary is to try to pull it all together. But how does one do this? And how does one also take account of the kind of contestation uh, in the EU around the Eurozone policies? And I thought, well, this was really a crisis of legitimacy. It's not just about economics or politics. It's also about legitimacy. And just to encapsulate what the argument is that this crisis started in 2010, as we know, as a result of Greek debt, etc. But the response was to govern by rules and rule by numbers. But as a result, legitimacy was increasingly at risk as a result of deteriorating economics and increasingly toxic politics. And we see this from 2010 to 2012, things get worse and worse until finally Draghi says, I'll do whatever it takes, market attacks stop, and the fast-burning crisis slows. And what we see in 2013 to 2015 is EU actors recognizing that their governing by rules and ruling by numbers had not worked, giving deteriorating economic performance and increasingly volatile politics. They began to reinterpret the rules and the numbers, but they did so by stealth without admitting it. So the result was you got incremental improvement, but you still had suboptimal rules and perceptions of illegitimacy. It's only by 2015 and on that EU actors generally admitted that they were reinterpreting the rules, which did indeed provide more legitimation, but the damage had already been done. One little question on these two 
understand somehow also the impact, the consequences of this sort of lack of uh, legitimacy. Because we, to give the fault to the type of measures, so for instance, austerity-led initiatives, that were put forward to justify or to understand the growing uh, discontent with respect to the European project and also the rise of populism or right-wing uh, euroscepticism in general. What you're adding here, it's like a description that the type of policies, uh, maybe the austerity, but also the way in which these policies were designed. So the political process, if you can perhaps expand on this and expand maybe on an intergovernative approach that maybe was applied in the aftermath of the Eurozone crisis. So do you see a, a big difference in the legitimacy in responses that are purely intergovernmental or responses that are instead more uh, community level? Yeah, well, that's a great set of questions. And I think in order to answer, I should probably define legitimacy because there are many different ways in which one can define legitimacy. I think and, that would but, be a good starting point. Exactly. And that, and that will then clarify the different ways in which there's different aspects of legitimacy that I'm focused on here. So there are two basic ways to consider legitimacy. One is legitimacy as a governing body's authority. This is that's basic in public consent and trust. And that's, the mo that's sort of kind of ordinary language way we think about legitimacy. But it's focused on governing authority. One also needs to think about legitimacy in terms of governing activities. And here, and sorry, I'm going to use the language of systems theory, sort of what EU studies do, but it's about output legitimacy. So it's policy effectiveness and performance for the common good. Input legitimacy, which is about political responsiveness as well as citizen representation and participation. And finally, throughput legitimacy which is about procedural quality. And what I'm doing here is saying, listen, it's not just that there was problematic policy performance, that the policies weren't effective and they didn't perform. And it's not, and we can see that in terms of citizen distrust with the government, increasing distrust with the governing authority, but also they're wanting to take back control, if you will. That's on the sort of the political side. Um, but it's also about the governance procedures themselves. And here, for legitimacy in terms of procedural quality, it's about the efficacy of the policymaking processes, the accountability of those making decisions to relevant forums, the transparency of their actions or access to information, inclusiveness and openness in terms of civil society. So throughput, the procedural quality, uh, brings in a lot of different kinds of criteria, but also important. Significantly, and this is really it's the heart of the problem for the EU, is that generally speaking, we assume that, okay, there's a trade-off between output and input legitimacy, meaning that, okay, the policies don't work but people voted for them, so it's, they're legitimate. Or the policies work, people didn't vote for them, but that's okay too. So there's a sense that there's a trade-off between uh, kind of performance and politics. And what happened, it seems to me, in the Eurozone crisis is that there was an assumption by EU actors that there was also a trade-off, same kind of trade-off, with procedures. All we have to do is double down on the rules and there'll be good policy performance and then it doesn't matter that the citizens 
were not on board with this. That was a big mistake. Our audience cannot see that, but in a, as you are speaking, I'm laughing because in, inside my brain, I'm thinking at how to assess the adjustment programs that have been carried out in Europe or the impact of Troika in the prism that you are putting forward. It's something that you, you also do in your book. But I mean, the assessment of Troika in terms of input uh, legitimacy so how participatory were somehow some the, the process uh, if civil society was involved uh, sometimes not even national parliaments were involved and then output legitimacy in the sense of have the measures worked and we have even documents of the IMF saying that okay perhaps we were wrong i was thinking okay maybe west performance was in throughput legitimacy once the input uh, legitimacy was done but in these big changes and big policies that have been carried out in Europe, where do you see the worst performance that has been done, the, the big mistakes that with your analysis you have been able to identify? So I think that we, I can safely say that all EU actors had some serious problems. The least problematic, I think, was the European Parliament, but they also had a relatively small role. If we start with the European Council, and what I do in the book is I say, if we're going to be talking about legitimacy, we need to weigh all the various ways in which one can consider legitimacy. I can't simply go ahead and say, you were legitimate, you were illegitimate. I want to provide all of the arguments on one side or the other. And so I provide a Janus-faced view of different EU actors. So for example, the council. My question is, was it a dictatorship led by Germany? and its Northern European coalition, or was it rather a mutually accountable deliberative body? You can make both sets of arguments. Probably in the first two years, it was more like a dictatorship. You know, think about the council was not a representative forum. There's no input legitimacy there. At best, you could say there's a kind of procedural legitimacy if it's mutually deliberative, if no one has too much power. But in those first two years, and you see this in the kinds of arguments that people make, Germany could be seen as dictatorial. It acted in its economic interests as the creditor. It forced debtors to pay. It was against a transfer union in terms of political interests. It was about German political opinion and an electoral contest in Nordrhein-Westfalia that Merkel did not say, okay, let's save Greece now and waited until it was almost too late. And you could even say that there are legal interests in terms of the constitutional court. Plus, what was Merkozy, other than Merkel telling Sarkozy or leading Sarkozy to a much more austerian position than he had initially taken prior to the deal in May 2010. So in that sense, we could say this is a dictatorship led by Germany, of course, with its Northern European alliance and coalition. On the other hand, Germany didn't get everything it wanted. Everyone agreed on the rules over and over again. And in that sense, this could have been a mutually accountable deliberative body in the shadow of Germany. We went from a discourse of stability in 2010 to one of growth in 2012 to flexibility in 2014 and investment in 2015. On that score, one might, might say that after the first two years at least, and possibly even before, there was more legitimacy than, the kind of, um, than some of the narratives that we see 
about the crisis. However, in response to your question about the Troika, certainly, and the pro- what happened with the program countries, I, you know, I think the alternatives, neither of the alternatives are very legitimate. A harsh dictatorship in the case of Greece and the third bailout, or perhaps deliberative authoritarianism in the case of the first and second Greek bailouts, or in the Irish and Portuguese bailouts, because yes, there's a lot of deliberation for member state leaders in that context, but ultimately they ended up having to accept what the Troika imposed. Of course, now that you are speaking about the legitimacy of European actions for uh, the previous crisis, I have to think about the parallelism with the current crisis. So somehow if you have seen from 2010 to 2020, a different approach to this democratic decision-making. Somehow, have European institutions learned something from their mistakes in the first two crises that we managed, meaning the global financial crisis and the Eurozone crisis? So what's really interesting is that at the very beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, It looked like the Eurozone crisis, déjà vu, all over again. The council seemed unaccountable. It failed to act as the member states pursued their own policies. The ECB claimed it wasn't its mandate to deal with the spreads between German and Italian bonds. And as you know, then Italian bonds went way up in terms of the interest rate. The European Parliament played no role and the commission was nowhere. And on top of that, it looked like the migration crisis, redux as national level borders went up. But very quickly, by June, July, even before, EU actors clearly showed that they'd learned the lessons of the Eurozone crisis. There was much more productive cooperation. They recognized the interdependence, finally, of Europeans, of the EU's economies with this symmetric shock of the pandemic. They break the taboos against EU-level rules on deficit deficit and debt that had been solidified in the Eurozone crisis, et cetera. And with regard to the council, instead of a dictatorship by Germany, what you had was the Franco-German duo back as a mutually accountable deliberative body as they proposed the 500 billion euros in the recovery fund even if there was the frugal four as a throwback to the Eurozone crisis. But even here you could say this was a deliberative body, even if one might not like the ultimate compromise as much as the commission's initial proposal for the EU for the next uh, generation fund. And in the ECB also very quickly became the hero of the crisis without any of the ogre-like Uh, aspects that it had in the Eurozone crisis where quid pro quo for monetary easing, it demanded austerity and structural reform. Uh, The commission in this also were what I would call ministers of moderation, not the ayatollahs of austerity in the first two years demanding rapid fiscal consolidation, structural reforms to the European semester. And think think what the commission did. It accommodates member states' uncoordinated national actions by suspending the budgetary criteria, by suspending uh, state aid rules, by not challenging the renationalization of borders. And it came up with new economic instruments. Sure, for employment support, up the ante on the Franco-German recovery fund with the next generation, 750 billion, and even more 
in the multi-annual financial budget. Uh, And even the European Parliament, which really had very little role to play in the Eurozone crisis, even though slowly but surely it had moved from a talking shop to more of an equal partner. Here, too, it played relatively little role at first. But in this last budget crunch, what you saw is it really pushed to put back money in for the EU for program that had been cut in, in July. Uh, in the EU uh, summit meetings, it pushed for rule of law and the implementation of the investment program. We'll see how that works out. We're right at the moment, you know, the final crunch moment for um, rule of law and all of this. But nonetheless, I think what you can safely say is that the the EU actors redeemed themselves in the pandemic in terms of the economics in great contrast to the Eurozone crisis, where it was as if they had gotten into uh, assuming that all you have to do is double down on the rules and everything will work to recognizing, uh uh-oh, that didn't work at all. And we see the rise of populism as a result. Learned the lessons, COVID-19, you had a a complete shift, really, in terms of response. You have briefly mentioned it in this response, the role of the European Central Bank, the ECB. Because I had the pleasure of just a few days ago to listen to an intervention of yours at the, at the European Parliament discussing the changing role of, of the ECB. It's not that we can, unfortunately, we cannot replicate what you said to the Parliament, but if you could condense a little bit your, your knowledge and your assessment of, of the changes of, of the ECB policies and positioning, if you want, from the previous crisis up to now. So what's really interesting about the ECB, so if we think about the pandemic fund, the you know next generation EU and all of that, I see that as a paradigm change from the past. So this is a major shift. Um, With the ECB, it's really incremental change. What we saw with the ECB was going from a very, very narrow interpretation of its mandate under Trichet, where at the outset of the Eurozone crisis, it basically said, we have to be credible, we have to stick to the rules, the no no bailout clause, clause means can never be a lender of last resort. And therefore, you had an ECB that was cautious, that didn't do what it could do and needed to do. And we know this also by comparison with the Fed and the Bank of England, that immediately, starting with the financial crisis of 2008, engaged in quantitative easing and simply kept that up. The ECB did a bit in the financial crisis and then pulled back massively with the Eurozone crisis said, no, it couldn't do that. And the result was there were market attacks for over two years. When Draghi does his famous, we're going to do whatever it takes to save the Eurozone, what you see is a slow but sure incremental change as the way in which, as this is a slow and incremental process of change, where Mario Draghi starts with a shift from a discourse of credibility to a stability in the medium term and a reinterpretation of his own mandate, perhaps by stealth in the sense that he wasn't saying we're reinterpreting our mandate. He simply said, this is our mandate, as he reinterpreted the rules, that this is always in our mandate. And what you saw is you went from the open monetary transactions, which demanded a quid pro quo from Spain and Italy were they to have to use OMT and they didn't need to, to 2015 quantitative easing, to then 
the pandemic emergency um, purchase program, which was yet another incremental shift in terms of more expansionary monetary policy that was also more legitimate, not only because of good performance, but also because it was also in line with what I could call the forums of legitimacy, expert forums of legitimacy, because increasingly you see the ECB engaging with other central bankers and more and more doing similar things to what other central banks did. In the beginning, the ECB says, oh, we're not like other central banks. We're not going to do it. And the result is the Eurozone suffered essentially from recession or weak economic growth for 10 years. Well, for at least five. And then we get the quantitative easing that gets more and more important. And it's with the pandemic that you see not only more easing, but also one where it now says we're bond buying from anyone. Forget the proportional rules that limited how much we could help the most affected countries, those countries most affected by market attacks. So this is a massive shift for the ECB, but incremental over time. This was a natural progression for the ECB as it had been reinterpreting its own mandate but tremendously important, of course, for the Eurozone. Another question, please allow me to start looking at the future instead. So uh, instead of uh, looking at the crisis uh, that we have faced, a uh, suggestion on how to uh, you know, address uh, and complete the response to the current COVID crisis. You described the, the council deal, but as you know, there's uh, still the vast majority of the implementation phase of the next generation EU, which is based on the national recovery strategies and still has to take place. Just last week, FEPS and Solidar, we have run a conference on the role of civil society for the recovery, for instance. So how to actually ensure that this recovery process is uh, somehow legitimate from an input viewpoint? So what are your recommendations for, for the EU policymaking and in, in, probably in these two domains, one on uh, the recovery and the national plans and maybe the other one uh, on also the future of fiscal rules. So how to make sure that at least in terms of process, we make it right? Two things. One where I'm going to bring in the ECB and the other where I'm going to bring in the European semester, all as a way of thinking about how to bring in civil society and the social part and to provide guidance for the future. So the ECB, which is engaging in these massive bond buying programs, has recognized that its primary objective of stability of is if it's inflation fighting, there is no inflation. It's really deflation fighting that needs to go on. And for that, and also there's a danger for the economy. And for that, it has to move from a focus on its primary objective to one on secondary objectives, which have to do with supporting the European economy. That's you know, official, that's part of its mandate, that's in the treaties. But the question is, who decides that? Should it just be the ECB to decide, ah, we're going to buy green bonds or not going to buy carbon-heavy uh, bonds? Are only by carbon neutral? Is it going to think about ways to deal with inequalities? Does it do, on it do it on its own? Or is there some way we can think about democratizing the process? And for this, and this was in my European parliamentary um, recommendation, 
Uh, we should think about a grand monetary dialogue. So this is not to tell the ECB, this is what you have to do on monetary policy, but rather to say, this is how we see go- what to do going forward. And this grand mon- macroeconomic dialogue, therefore, should involve the ECB, but should also involve the commission, the council, but also industry leaders, unions, and civil society in a sort of a grand conversation about where the what the future of the EU economy should look like. And I think this should be a yearly function, just as the way at the national level, governments say every year, what's the budget supposed to be? Where do we, where do we want to go for the future? And certainly in elections, you see that because that's where different political parties say contest what the economic policies should be. That's what we need at the European level. We can't have the same thing. We don't have elections in the EU to elect new governments because there is no such thing as an EU level government. But we need to sort of replicate that kind of discussion to provide a kind of shadow of politics for the ECB, the way you have that at the national level. So ECB to get a sense of sort of where, what kinds of secondary objectives it should be applying. Not that I'm saying we limit it because it is independent, but that it get a sense. It become in that way more input legitimate by understanding, but a get a sense of guidance. But that's one. The European semester is something else. And that needs to be rethought. To my mind, the European semester is an amazing architecture of coordination. Um, but for a very long time, it has, it has been perceived as top-down. The EU telling the member states, you need fiscal faults fiscal consolidation, you need need to do this, that, and the other in terms of structural reform. Whether or not the countries did it doesn't make what's important here. It's the sense that this is a top-down approach. What's really fascinating about these national resilience and recovery plans is that we've already, in a way, inverted the European semester. In the conclusion to my book, I say what we need to do is instead of this top-down approach, you need a bottom-up approach. Well, in a sense, these national resilience and recovery plans are exactly that, are more bottom-up because it's the national level that says, here's what we want to do within the context of using these funds. I think that's wonderful. But then we have to ask how do we ensure that this is in its, of itself more open to civil society, more democratic? Two things, three things. One, think about the commissions, the committees set up at the national level. There's the National Fiscal Board that, were set up, that was set up as, as basically austerity hawks. They need to be shifted into industrial strategy advisors. There are national competitiveness councils turn them into industrial policy councils at the national and even regional level, but decentralize the process. Don't have it a top-down national level process, but rather democratize it as well as decentralize it by in these competitiveness councils that we now call industrial policy councils or industrial strategy councils, because industrial policy may be still a bad word to some, Um, But bring in the social partners, bring in civil society actors. You know, think back to to the 1950s in France. The plan was all about bringing in the force vive of the society, the local actors to talk about what it is, how to move forward, etc. 
I think that's the sort of thing that one needs to recommend where and how to invest from the ground up. But this also not only ensures that everyone has a say, it also helps guard against corruption and clientelism. And also, probably also reinforces rule of law. Because the moment you bring in civil society groups, you bring in social partners, industry, and unions, this is a much more transparent discussion and dialogue as opposed to one behind closed doors. So that's the way I see in terms of rethinking and renovating the European semester as well as democratizing it. And that, of course, could also then feed into, into this grand macroeconomic dialogue in terms of where the EU as a whole should go. But of course, there's still problems here. Which problem? Okay, so think about the Eurozone rules have been suspended, but they've not been reformed yet. And watch out for the Austerians. Watch out for the frugal four or five who are likely to come back back in two or three years with warnings about debt. And so my view here is one needs to turn these Eurozone rules into, you know, the governing by rules and ruling by numbers doesn't work. These numbers, 60% debt, when most countries are going to be at 120, 130%, if not 200% debt, makes no sense. And the deficit rules make no sense either, especially when the whole focus is on investment. So at the very, these numbers, these rules and numbers should be turned into, if they can't be gotten rid of entirely, these rules and numbers, if they can't be gotten rid of entirely, should be turned into guidelines, standards. Olivier Blanchard talks about uh, standards, Uh, but you could also just talk about following the golden rule on investment. Important to note that those countries without fiscal space throughout the 10 years of the Eurozone crisis were not allowed to invest. No surprise that Italy and Spain have been in really tough shape in terms of responding to the pandemic. They were not allowed to invest at the same time that uh, Northern Europeans could invest, had the fiscal space, but didn't. So not only do we need more investment in the right particular ways, but we also need to rethink the rules. We are extremely grateful for this somehow also extremely useful, not only sharp, but also good to plan ahead proposals that you have just shared with us. I would like to give you maybe the last opportunity, maybe one minute, and then we conclude this podcast to signal what you really think we should have learned from the crisis from the, uh, that we dealt with in the past. The really the lesson that we really have to take home. Okay, the lesson is that in the Eurozone crisis, EU leaders... EU actors did it all wrong. They should have done then what they've only done now, which is EU-level serious, more serious EU budget, EU-level debt that hopefully will move from a temporary fund to a permanent fund, ECB as a real lender of last resort, suspending or at least reforming the Eurozone debt and deficit rules, rethinking the European semester. I mean, all of these things should have happened 10 years ago, but at least everyone has learned the lessons. They'll never admit it. These are political sunk costs. No one's going to say we were wrong, but that's not important. What's important is getting it right now. And hopefully this will continue and that we will see 
the EU finally doing what it needs to do, what it can do. And that means investing in the future, investing in Europe altogether, cooperatively. Thanks a lot, Professor Schmidt. I invite all of you who want to deepen uh, uh, ideas and research on these topics that we touched upon today to look at Professor Schmidt's book, Europe's Crisis of legitimacy, as well as at uh, FEP's Solidar uh, study on inequality and the European semester that actually look at the type of revisions that we can have for this uh, coordination tool of economic policy to make it uh, somehow a little bit more inclusive, not only in the process, but also in the in its uh, output legitimacy. The other publication that I might suggest uh, you to look at, uh, touching on some of the discussion we have today on the participatory aspects uh, for uh, the future of the economic policy is the FEPS task uh, publication on the people's transition, which we also stress that this, the participatory approach toward industrial policy, industrial strategy is uh, necessary and somehow we try to advocate for community-led uh, transition methods that involves a lot of local actors. Thanks everybody and uh, hear you soon uh, again on FEPS Talks. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPS Talks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned. <laughs>